Today, I got the pleasure to sit down with Seamus Mullen, whose list of accolades and accomplishments in the food and restaurant industry is beyond impressive. But what was even more impressive was his vulnerability and wisdom as he shares more about who he is. He speaks to the power of the process and how compassion and forgiveness has impacted his life in small ways, but most importantly, bringing healing to his relationship with his father, which he shares so beautifully in today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Liz Severin, and on this podcast, we engage in conversation and learn from Hoffman graduates. We'll dive deep into their journeys of self-discovery and explore how the process transformed their internal and external worlds. They share how their spirit and light now burn brighter in all directions of their lives. Their Love's Everyday Radius. Welcome, everybody. Today, I have Seamus Mullen with us. Hi, Seamus. Hi, Liz. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm super excited to be able to sit down and talk with you. And I'm hoping you could share with us and the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. I am a chef by training. Uh, I spent 20 plus years working in restaurants. Um, I owned and operated restaurants for a long time. And in the past 10 years, I've kind of transitioned more into um, focusing on how food impacts our well-being and our health. I'm a cookbook author, and I consult on a, on a number of different projects, both in the hospitality world, but also in the world of health and wellness. Yeah, I live in Southern California. I'm a very active guy and uh, recently got back from the Hoffman process, which I think we're going to talk a lot about. So I guess that gives you a little idea of who I am, what I do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and I think selling yourself a little bit short, you're not just a restauranteur, right? You were a very accomplished chef with some very successful restaurants and TV appearances and you name it, you've had it in the, in the restaurant foodie world is what I, what I know of you. Is that correct? (laughs) Well, that's very sweet of you to say. I mean, I, we've all kind of learned about what the world of restaurants are like and chefs are like through reality television. And there's some truth to what you see. It's a pretty hard driving and tough lifestyle. But yeah, I I really did focus for a long time on on my career. And unfortunately, I sort of paid the price with my health. You know, I, I focused on driving and building my career while my health was deteriorating. So it got to a point where I realized that I had to make a shift or I wasn't going to be around. But yeah, I've been in this world and for a long time, and really hoping that we can make some changes in broad strokes around our relationship with food, because I think so many people in the industry that I'm in, you know, don't have a terrifically good relationship with food. And unfortunately, that is, the, in my opinion, is one of the foundations of our well-being. I'm interested to know what got you into cooking and interested in all of the culinary arts. I grew up on a small farm in Vermont, and I was always around food and cooking. And cooking was sort of like I can't remember a time that I didn't cook. From early childhood, I was cooking with my grandmother, and it was just something that we did. It was another another chore that my brother and I had to share with the rest of the family. But I, I think I learned pretty early on that if I made really delicious food, people liked me. 
And so it was, um, it was very self-serving. And I think it continued that way for, for the majority of my, my professional career, where I realized if I made good food, it made people happy and then people in turn liked me. So it was a lot of, it was the positive mirroring that might've been missing from my, my early childhood I got through food. Well, what's one of your dishes, your favorite dishes to cook? Oh, good Lord. What to, what to say? I don't know. I mean, I, I, anything that's fresh and in season and full of flavor and uncomplicated, I'm always of the opinion that most chefs need editors to edit down the number of ingredients in the dish. If you really want to pay homage to the ingredient, you do as little as is necessary to make it shine. So it could be something as simple as a beautiful heirloom tomato in, in the height of summer with some really good olive oil, a drizzle of good vinegar and some fresh herbs. And that's it. And it doesn't need very much. And do you think that kind of the upbringing, small organic farm in Vermont kind of led to some of the simplicity that you, that you love, the whole ingredients, that approach? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I, I was, I think a lot of people of our age and our generation have an aha moment where they taste a, an heirloom tomato for the first time. And they're like, holy shit, this is what a tomato should taste like. And my experience was kind of the opposite. I grew up with really, really good produce when I went to, into school in first grade. And we had a hot lunch program. I remember having a tomato that was like crunchy and had zero flavor. And I didn't even know what it was. So I sort of had the inverse, the inverse uh, aha moment where I realized what the rest of the world was eating. So I definitely have been steeped in very good ingredients from an early age. I think that that was certainly a part of the reason why I chose the career that I went into. And you mentioned earlier kind of your own health journey and healing journey, relationship with food. Care to fill us in a little bit more about that? I was a pretty athletic kid. And in high school, I was really athletic. And then in college, I started to not feel so great. I, I got all these, I'd get these sort of mysterious attacks in different joints. And that progressed and got worse into my 20s to where I was feeling chronically pretty crappy. And I didn't know what it was. And, and it was, I didn't have any specific symptoms that were clear enough to come to a diagnosis. So for several years, I would just have these had aches and pains that come and go. Sometimes I would just feel like I had the flu and I was really run down or low energy. And it got progressively worse to the point where I was going into the hospital pretty frequently to the ER with these horrific attacks in my shoulder or in my, in my ankle or my knee. And the joint would swell up and there wasn't really any reason why I hadn't had an injury. And, uh, and eventually I was, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, um, which is a chronic inflammatory autoimmune disease. Once I was diagnosed and I kind of had this diagnosis to hang my hat on, it did give me sort of a sense of relief that I wasn't, it wasn't all in my mind. It wasn't nuts. But it also gave me a pass to not really be responsible for my well-being. Well, I'm just sick. You know, I'm a sick person and uh, I'm going to take these meds and just do the best I can. And I followed that conventional path of allopathic medicine for many years. And it kind of took me down a pretty dark path where it just, I was able to manage the symptoms for a long time, but I just got more and more chronically ill and I gained a lot of weight and I just felt terrible in, I would say about 12 years ago, I had this moment where I really, I was kind of at the end of my rope. I, I had a near-death experience. Um, I, I got bacterial meningitis as a, I mean, literally my immune system was just extremely suppressed by the immunosuppressants I was on to try to control RA. And as a result, I got an infection in my brain and it nearly killed me. And that's when I realized that what I was doing to try to treat this disease was not working you know, I, I was very fortunate to meet a doctor of functional medicine who helped me understand that the lifestyle decisions, choices I was making on a daily basis were impacting my health. 
and that I could actually do something about it. And there was there was something pretty empowering about that, understanding that I could make choices that would directly impact this disease I was living with. And he helped me also understand that I wasn't sick, but I had an illness. And it was a very different mindset. Once I was able to kind of separate myself from this illness, I started to chip away at it. And through changing my relationship with food, I mean, I I totally revamped my whole life. And over the course of the next year, I slowly started to see all these symptoms disappear. And eventually I got to the point where even my biomarkers for the illness were gone. And I technically was in remission, but if you ask me, I think a lot of autoimmune dysfunction can actually, because these are modern illnesses, it can be, they can be reversed. Um, In my case, you know, I've been symptom free for over for 12 years and and I feel really great. That was the physical journey. That's sort of a glossing over it, but it was a it was a pretty remarkable experience to go through. Yeah, I mean, it sounds profound. And I want to circle back to what you just said, uh, that he helped you realize I wasn't sick. I had an illness. And can you speak to the distinction that that helped kind of create inside of you? Uh, I think for a long time, and and this is not uncommon. I think folks that are experiencing chronic pain or or even sadness, or in my case, it was all lumped together. It was There was an emotional component, but there was also, there was just this chronic physical pain that I felt. I started to identify with it and it became a defining element of who I was. I fell into this, this role of being a victim, which is very hard to get out of and also somewhat comforting to be in because it really feels like you take away the responsibility for, for your own well-being. And I think that this is something that a lot of people struggle with. And it happens like with trauma, for instance. If you've been through a traumatic experience, it is most definitely not your fault that you experience this trauma. But if you want to move beyond it, it is your responsibility to acknowledge it and to work through it. And I think that for me, I kind of I embrace that sense of being a victim, like, oh, why me? You know, I don't deserve this. This is, you know, and it's it's like not my fault. But at the same time, let me just kind of live in this space as being a as being a victim because then I don't have to do anything about it. And it can be really daunting to try to move away from that and understand that the responsibility of dealing with you either are going to identify with your illness and live in it, or take responsibility for the way that you're leading your life and try to make change. And it took me a long time, but I got there. (laughs) And that makes me think of those two posters, if you remember um, from your process that hang on the wall, my life is my responsibility and I am not my patterns. And I think it just underscores, yeah, those two two powerful statements. Yeah. That was one of the first things that, that my eyes just gravitated towards when I walked into the classroom was looking up and seeing, I am not my patterns. That was like a really powerful thing to realize that we so often define ourselves by pattern behavior. So if a, if a pattern is to be a victim, you perceive yourself as a victim. Or if a pattern is to be sick, you perceive yourself as sick or defective. That was like very eye-opening to realize that, holy shit, that's stuff that I have done for a really long time. Yeah. Well, and, and we went there, Hoffman, huh? So what brought you to Hoffman? I think in a lot of ways, as much progress as I have made in my own physical health, in many ways, I still felt very much like I was stuck in the past and mired in the past living with with resentment. And that was keeping me from truly living in the present and progressing. And my mom died really suddenly two years ago. 
And I, that really just messed me up. And uh, I was really close with her. But I think I also struggled after she died with resentment that I still held towards her and that con- internal conflict of how can I be angry towards this woman that I love so much and who now I lost. And it created a lot of internal conflict for me. I knew that I needed to focus on there's some work that I need to do. And I didn't know exactly what that work was. And I had several friends that kind of all showed up in my life and had gone through the process and spoke so positively of the process that I was really interested in and I applied for it. But of course, being COVID, there was a really, really long wait list. And I kind of forgot about it, honestly. I made a lot of progress and I did a lot of good work and I I actually was in a much better place, not in like a state of internal conflict or crisis nearly as much. And then I got a call from the folks at at Hoffman saying, hey, uh, we we might have a space opening next week. We'll know by this afternoon and we'll need to know from you if you can do it by tomorrow or something like that. So it all kind of happened really quickly. And I just, I I talked with with my partner. She's like, yeah, no, I think you should do it. As things happen in my life often, everything just kind of aligned that I happen to have a light enough week that I could be flexible the following week to move things around and do it. I know for most people, it involves a tremendous amount of planning to be able to set aside eight days to work on yourself. I happen to be really lucky that when this opportunity popped up, I was I one of out of 52 weeks of the year that I actually had the flexibility to be able to do it. It happened to be uh, the right time. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I kind of went into it without, I mean, I did all the homework the weekend before, which was a, a lot of writing. And I have to say too, like in doing a lot of the homework, I was a little, um, I talked to Drew, my teacher about this before getting there. I was a little like apprehensive because I felt like a lot of it was focused on early childhood and it was all work that I thought I'd already done. And even the first few days of the process, like I got there and was a little resistant because I felt like, you know, I, I think I've already done a lot of this work. And Drew kept telling me, you get it in your head, Seamus. I want you to feel it. I really want you to, to feel it and connect those two elements. And I think that was when my head and my heart kind of connected, I think on day three or day four, things really started to make a lot of sense. It was a really powerful moment. Do you remember what experience or, or when that was for you when your head and heart connected? Well, without saying too much, I would. There, there was a moment in the process where we were kind of going through compassion and forgiveness in the, in the cycle of transformation, understanding compassion and forgiveness, not only for others, but also for yourself. And one of the exercises that we were doing, and for me, this became a really powerful tool, was letter writing, you know, writing letters as a 12-year-old to my 12-year-old father, but having this sort of like omnipotent visibility into the entire lifespan of both of us, I was able to really understand that my dad and even his dad and to go generations deep to see that there are just these patterns that are that we repeat from generation to generation. Holding on to resentment is almost like blaming the individual for their pattern. And I guess that goes back to that poster in the classroom that we are not our patterns. A lot of the resentment that I held towards my parents from my early childhood I was identifying them with their patterns and incapable of separating them from their patterns and sort of going through this process of developing compassion, understanding what they had gone through and understanding that my parents were just repeating that the patterns that they had experienced from their parents. And because I happen to know a lot about both my mother's parents and my father's parents and even their parents, I was really able to, it's like this, this aha moment when I was like, holy shit. Of course, my dad didn't know how to be a present dad to me because he he was raised without a dad and his dad was raised without a dad. And 
you know, there's this sort of generational trauma that you just sort of, you end up repeating the same sorts of patterns that you have experienced or else you develop other patterns in uh, reaction to the patterns that you've experienced. That was a really amazing moment for me. And then from there, going through this exercise of forgiveness and realizing that, and this was probably the, the thing that struck me the most about the process is truly understanding that forgiveness is not for the forgivee, it's for the forgiver. And when I was able to truly have compassion for the experiences of my parents and grandparents and then forgive them, it wasn't to assuage them of their guilt or responsibility, but rather to free me of the resentment that I was holding on to. And that was an incredible moment. I think we talked about this quote that resentment is like drinking a poison and expecting your enemy to die. I realized that that kind of played back into what I had learned in my physical transformation of being a victim, that I was still kind of holding on to. I was able to let go of it in this physical journey that I went through and going from being really, really sick to being healthy, but I hadn't quite gotten there in the, you know, the emotional component. Yeah, it's beautiful and so well said, right, about how compassion has to come before forgiveness. And so by leading you through that dialogue writing, you were like, ah, I see mom and dad so much clearer. And then you were able to step into that exploration of forgiveness and releasing the resentments. Yeah, that was a really remarkable experience to go through because I, as much as I knew about my father's childhood and my mother's childhood, I hadn't ever really embodied it with them. Like for people who haven't been through the process, one of the things that we do is letter writing. You really spend a lot of time kind of sitting with your parents and what you don't know about them, you can surmise from from what you do know. And to me it was I, I literally was embodying the experience of being my dad as a young child, as a young boy, as a teenager, and realized that ultimately, you know, we're all to a certain degree and to the degree to which we're, we're willing to acknowledge it, there's like a part of us that's always just a, a scared child. And seeing that as a scared child, we develop all these sorts of patterns to kind of to survive, either to pretend that we're not or to go deeper into it. You know, being able to really sit with both my, my mom and my dad and see their experiences made me really see them in a different light and accept them for who they are as flawed and beautiful and loving people. So Shumas, I'm curious to hear if the deep exploration that you just mentioned around your parents, you know, the understanding, the compassion you found, if that translates into or has shifted into current relationships. So has your relationship or dynamic with your father shifted at all? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you should ask this. You know, one of the things that we talked about in the process is afterwards to reach out to family and to connect with them. And, and I did that. I reached out to my dad and I invited him to come and visit me in California. Uh, I mean, I, my dad hasn't gone out of his way to visit me in, I don't know, forever. So it was nice. said, hey, I Pops, I think it'd be great if you came out and maybe we could go camping, we could hang out and spend some time together. And he was really, uh, he was very grateful and excited to do that. And he booked a ticket and came out. We spent about a week together and the first first few days were great. I mean, I one of the things that I've been able to really do since the process is to just in the act of forgiveness to really let go of that resentment that I'd held on to for a really long time in my relationship with my dad and just accept him for exactly for who he is and to even see him just as a wounded and hurt child who was scared. We had a great, great visit. He uh, he spent some time with me and my partner in Southern California, and then he and I drove north to the Bay Area where I had some work. 
and we went camping and super fun. And after like, I don't know, about three or four days, I could feel myself falling back into some patterns of left road patterns of being a little snarky and a little passive aggressive towards him. And I caught myself, you know, I used some of the, some of the tools that we learned in the process to, to recycle that and reframe what I was feeling and realize that the things that were triggering me in him you know, it's up to me to decide how to react to that. And a trigger is only a trigger if you allow it to be. It's just information and how you want to hold on to it is going to determine how you react to that. And so I was able to kind of let go of it, which was great. And there was this, this is something I want to tell you because it's, it's kind of cool. So there was this, this interesting um, situation that came up with my dad. My, my dad's, my aunt, my dad's sister lives in the Bay Area. He hadn't seen her in many years. And I suggested that we see her, that we pay her a visit. And he was really resistant to that. Um, he said, well, no, no, you know, she's really pissed at me because I, I forgot to call her on her 80th birthday. You know, I said to him, dad, let me do this. And I kind of wrote out a script for him. I said, we're going to call her and you're just going to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I forgot your birthday. But just so happens that I came out to visit Seamus. We made a last minute decision to come up to the Bay Area and we're nearby and we'd love to see you. Is there any way we could drop by and, and have breakfast? And so he did that. He called her and I heard on, I could hear her on the phone. She was so excited to hear that one, that he'd reached out, two, that we were nearby and three, that we were going to come by and visit them. We did that. And then we went and I, you know, we had to get some ingredients to make her breakfast and bring over some, bring some nice things over and have some housewarming gifts, et cetera. And we went over and had breakfast with her and made her breakfast. And um, she was so incredibly happy to see us and she you know she started crying and she said i i made peace with the fact that i thought i would never see you again before i die and seeing you is the greatest gift and he felt great they had a great visit and you know it was really nice and and then we went to the beach and we hung out on the beach and had a long talk on the beach and i said you know how do you feel about that dad how was he said it was so nice to see her it was great you know thank you so much for making this happen I said, do you feel how leaning into this released you from that guilt that you felt and how that was eating you up? He's like, you know, I'm an old dog, but I can still learn. There's a lot of learning still in me. And it's this thing that I've learned. A friend of mine told me once, is super smart. He said, everything in this world is born, it lives, and it dies. But we stupid humans don't let feelings die. We hold on to them and we keep them alive and we keep stoking them. And if we can just sort of accept them, even if they're bad, they will pass too. And I think that that was something that my dad really struggled with. It was really nice to be able to see that so much of what I had learned in the process was now affecting somebody so important to me in my life. And through osmosis, I was seeing my dad change. Oh, Seamus, I don't even have words. I mean, that is such a profound story. Isn't it cool? I mean, I don't want to take a thousand percent credit for it, but I do think a big part of his being able to reconnect with his sister who he hadn't spoken with in, or hadn't seen in years and had definitely has had a challenged relationship with came from also accepting her forgiving her forgiving himself and having compassion for both himself and for his sister and he just needed a little bit of a encouragement to do that well absolutely and how incredible that you get to be the person that through your own work found compassion and forgiveness for him and were able to then extend that and make real life shifts. I'm always curious. We spend a lot of time at the process talking about parental relationships. And, you know, as teachers, we don't always hear how life 
shifts and changes beyond that, or especially with that dynamic. And so just to see how your vulnerability came out and was able to lead him in a in an act of courage and vulnerability in and of itself is incredible. He has been able to perceive a shift because he's known, you know, for my entire adult life and most of my childhood, I have held on to a lot of resentment and anger towards him for the relationship that we had for my early childhood, for shit that I just went through. I had a pretty, I think, a, a challenged and unusual upbringing in many ways. And I, holding on to that was really holding me back. And it was a big part of why I went to the process in the first place and really have felt like I've been able to let go of that. My dad has obviously felt that he's, he's like, I've noticed an incredible shift. It feels so good to not feel like I'm walking on eggshells around you when I call you. And it feels good for me too, not to feel triggered or to slide into passive aggressive left road behavior when he does something that I find annoying. I just rather accept him like, well, that's, that's who he is. He's not going to change. And if I am hoping that he becomes something that he's not, then I'm going to perpetually be disappointed. But if I can just really just embrace who he is and also have compassion for the trauma and pain and shame that he's carried his whole life, then I can, uh, I can get on with my life and live a fuller life. Absolutely. Just the reminder that it's never too late to rewrite your story or get a chance to change and shift relationships is beautiful. You know, there's nothing really remarkable. I think people are always sort of worried about how they're going to be perceived after they go through some sort of transformation of their own. When you show up differently in, in your relationships, how people respond. And there's something remarkable about, like, you just can't have a one sided argument. When you've when you let go of resentment and are able to objectively see things that may have triggered you in the past and just sort of accept them and let go of them, then if you find yourself in an adversarial dynamic with someone who maybe is with a parent or it's with, with a partner, rather than being triggered or meeting their conflict, you just sort of are you're able to show up differently because you've learned new tools. It's amazing how that ends up naturally manifesting in the dynamic of the relationship and the person that you might have been historically in conflict with. There's conflict takes two people. And if you're not meeting that conflict, it's sort of like it just ameliorates. It's this whole idea of falling on your sword. In good partnerships, both partners are constantly falling on their sword. And it's a reminder that we need to do that. And sometimes it takes the first person to do that for the dynamic to shift. I'm reminded of the story of the Buddha. The Buddha, you know, was traveling around. This very wealthy Brahmin came to the Buddha and said, Oh, you've been telling all these people that you're enlightened and doing all this great stuff. And I think you're a fake and you're a phony. And um, the Buddha said to the Brahmin, Well, if you invite me into your home and you cook for me, whose food is that? He said, Well, it was mine, but now it's yours. And the Buddha said, What happens if I decide, tell you I don't want that food and I reject that food? Whose food is it now? And the Brahmin said, Well, it's, it's mine. And he said, I reject your anger. The moral being that if you don't accept someone's anger, there is no conflict. So if you don't meet it, there is no conflict. And that's it. I always think of like these, you know, the Kung Fu movies from the, from the 60s and 70s. You're sort of like, you just move out of the way and the conflict stops. Um, the conflict goes away. It disappears like wind. That's something that I've, I've really started to learn in my own life post-process 
which is that if you kind of get away from that, he said, she said, or that ping pong match of conflict and just step out of the way, you'll realize that there is no conflict. The conflict's totally manufactured often. And I've seen that play out in in relationships and partnership and even in traffic, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yes. Ability to move out of the way, but also the ability to meet it in a new way of being being brave enough to try on a different quality or a different way of being and, and seeing how it shifts, the ripple effect begins. Yeah, exactly. People are often worried about like, what is the dynamic going to be if you show up differently in, in your relationships? And you don't know. That's the beautiful thing about life is like, you can't control it. So it's going to be what it's going to be. And chances are, it's probably going to be better. But I'm curious if you found um, the group environment of Hoffman to be healing or helpful in that compassion piece? I was so resistant to the idea of group work before going to Hoffman. I was really, I didn't like the idea of oversharing. I didn't like the idea of so-and-so is going to just like dominate and talk about themselves. And like, it just seems all too like woo-woo and too new agey for me. Surprisingly, it ended up being something that I liked most about the experience. I don't think it can happen outside of a group setting. There's an amazing camaraderie or fraternity or sorority, whatever you want to call it, of the universality of the human experience, that realizing that all of the insecurities and all the fears and all of the um, pain and the hurt that I may experience, that you experience too. The human experience is universal. We are all thrust into this world and we go from being in one same safe place in, in the womb of our mothers to suddenly being rejected. And it's sort of a series of rejections throughout our childhood and whether what helps us either cope with that or reinforce that sense of, of shame is parenting. But it's all it's there to differing degrees for all of us. And being in the group setting was was pretty remarkable. It's super cool just to see that one, to see the growth in other people, but also just to feel that there's something comforting in knowing that you're not alone. There's a moment where we had these courageous conversations where you approach someone and bring up a moment over the course of the week where they've reacted to a pattern. Somehow you've triggered a pattern. And this is something else that was really interesting is learning about this idea of triggering and then realizing that the feeling was totally endogenous to yourself. It was not something that someone else had, had imposed upon you. And the guy who came up to me, was, was great. You know, he realized early on in the week that he'd seen me and it triggered him. In his mind, I was walking and all these people were talking to me and uh, he was like, oh, here's this guy. He's really... He's outgoing and everybody likes him, blah, blah. But then I realized, whoa, that's really weird because that's exactly how I felt about him. I went and, and I told him that afterwards and he was like, are you kidding? And I'm like, no, dude. Like We could have a 180 degree conversation and the shoe could be on the other foot. And isn't that wild how like we all walk around with these insecurities and we just assume that everyone else has got it all figured out? And I think to a degree, like the world that we live in operate now, especially in the world of social media, where everyone's portraying the best version of themselves or this fictitious version of themselves, it's very easy to think that we live in a life where we're like insignificant or less than because there's always someone that is has better abs or is smarter or wealthier or has a hotter boyfriend or a bigger house or a fancier car. So we never feel like we measure up. And I, I don't know, that was just a really, a really interesting experience for me to see. Yeah, the power of transference <laughs> can be um, healing all in and of itself. Another thing I wanted to talk about, though, was you mentioned um, 
previously that part of this journey you, at Hoffman, you had realized that you had been outsourcing both your joy and your sorrow. And I found that so profound. And I'm hoping you could shed a little more light and share with us what you meant by that. Yeah, it's something that I didn't realize that I've been doing for most of my life. And I think outsourcing my sorrow, I sort of touched on with this idea of being a victim. It's like, okay, this is uh, these these things have happened to me. Therefore, I am I'm a victim and I'm unhappy or I'm in pain or whatever. And that's like outsourcing the responsibility of it rather than taking ownership, you know, saying I am not my patterns. But then outsourcing my joy is really, I think a big part of that is comes from not feeling mirrored as a child. And I truly do believe that children need to be loved unequivocally just for being who they are, not for what they do, not for what how they perform, not for how they behave, but just for being. That's a very, very important part of childhood development. And when kids feel like they have to perform or that love is conditional, it really creates some very damaging patterns that I think a lot of us end up holding for the majority of our lives if we're not able to actually acknowledge it and work through it. I think for a long time, I did outsource my my joy, meaning I was dependent upon seeing myself reflected in the others as being good. If you were to ask me what are like my deepest insecurities, you know, they're that I'm an idiot, that I'm unlovable. Anybody who knows me would say, oh, don't be silly, Jim. You're ridiculous. You're, you're, of course you're lovable. Of course you're smart. But of course, that has been my inner monologue since, since early childhood. And it's only through realizing that I have been dependent upon others around me telling me, no, no, you're smart. You're not an idiot. You're, you are valuable. You are worthy. Rather than turning inside and actually feeling that and believing in myself. And I think that goes back to that, that idea of self-compassion and also self-forgiveness. Self-forgiveness means forgiving myself for having those negative feelings that I've had towards myself. Overcoming that idea of being dependent upon an external input to feel of value, which is something that I think goes back to early childhood. I think children really need to, it needs to be reinforced in children that they are of value and they are lovable and they are deserving of love just for showing up, you know, just for, for being there. And then the other stuff comes from that. Like then everything else is figure outable. If the sentiment to the child from early on is that they're only of value as long as they do X, Y, Z, then they're going to have to perform or behave or see a reflection of what they've done to feel a value. You don't have to throw a stone very far to hit any number of people that in, in the public eye who you know are dependent upon external inputs to feel a value. The lack of sense of self-worth that I think is an epidemic, I think I experienced that throughout most of my life, which was just really having to, again, going to that term that I brought up, outsource my, my joy and outsource my sorrow rather than taking ownership and responsibility for the trauma and pain that I've experienced and realizing it's my, my decision whether I want to live in it or I want to change. And the same going for, for my joy. What I find so interesting in all of this is I always describe it to students as we're peeling back the layers of an onion, right? And it just, you get deeper and you get deeper and you make new insights, new connections. And even just what you're sharing about, you know, these shame beliefs, these shame messages that live in you and how one of your earlier kind of reflections back to you was through cooking. You know, you got people's love and attention through what you made for them, what you did for them, how you cooked for them. And then that is something that you carried and create and then built a whole life around. Yeah. 
I mean, for sure, it's no, it's no accident that I went into a, a career that would give me a lot of, of mirroring. You know, I said that at the, the top of this conversation. I think I went into it because I was desperate to get that validation and sense of worth because I just didn't, you know, from early on, I didn't feel it. Like getting a hit of that, a dopamine hit of feeling like, oh, you know what? If you do this, people like you. So do more of this. It, I think it's a big part of why I went into the career that I went into. And what are some ways that, or, you know, we could offer to people or that you've been sort of trying to fill this self-love? We've, we've hinted at it, right? But what are some ways that you've approached self-love recently or even after the Hoffman process to sort of build that or fill your cup of love back up? One of the things that I, I think about a lot is this idea that, you know, we think about illness as being contagious, but we don't often think of love or health or well-being as being contagious. And I think there is a positive contagion and some of it is internal and, and might require a little bit of a, of a bump start. Like you got to roll it down the hill a little bit. You got to fake it till you make it sort of thing. The process of self-forgiveness and self-compassion, I think is hugely important. So just accepting that it's okay that you're totally f-ed up because we all are, accept that that's okay. Don't expect you yourself to be perfect. Understand that like your flaws are part of what make you wonderful. And then like, for me, it's been doing things that genuinely for myself that are really truly for myself that bring me joy and building on it. And when you start to experience that internal joy, the contagion is wanting to experience more of that. And then also having forgiveness for yourself when you have a hard day and when you, when you have anxiety and I wake up and I feel overwhelmed, like to understand it's okay that I need those dark days for the light days too. The sun can't always be shining. This is something I think about every day, and I know it's super silly, but I have survived 100% of the worst days of my life. I'm here now. I've been through shit, and I'm still here. And there is a sense of accomplishment in that. I learned a really important lesson when I was nine years old, and I've kind of carried it with my, my whole life. My, my grandfather's best friend was a Japanese gardener. His name was Tatsuo. They were in World War II together. Tatsuo was his translator. They were Tatsuo's Japanese-American, and they remained friends till they both died in their, in their 70s. I remember when I was nine visiting my grandpa, and Tatsuo was gardening in their garden, and he was on his hands and knees, and he was crawling backwards. And I thought it was just so weird that that was how he worked. He always just crawled backwards. And I said to him, I said, I was like, Tatsu, why, why do you, why do you work backwards? And he, he took his gloves off like he was about to give me some great life lesson, which he was. And he looked at me and said, Well, Seamus, that's that's so. I'm no never overwhelmed by the daunting task ahead of me, and I just always inspired by all that I've accomplished. That's something that I've tried to keep with me in in that idea of practicing self love. Like, look what I've done. Look at what you've accomplished, not, oh my God, this is so overwhelming, this task ahead of me, but look at everything you've gotten through. And that little practice, it does help reframe what can otherwise seem overwhelming. And it's not that it always works, but it certainly, for me, has been helpful. Well, I think there is no better place to end than with the words of Tatsu, <laughs> because that is quite, uh, quite remarkable and profound just, just in that and taking that sentiment forward. So Thank you so much, Seamus, for for sitting down and talking with me today and sharing with us about life and Hoffman and everything in between. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Liz. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi. 
Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.